Uh, If you have a Bible with you, if you want to turn to the book of Daniel, we've been working through the book of Daniel here since the start of the year. Um, I'm going to read the first uh, 14 verses of the book of Daniel, and then we'll pray and look at it together. Um, Just to warn you as we get into this, I did say a few weeks ago that the book of Daniel is a wonderful book, but it gets a bit weirder as it goes on. And perhaps the turning point where the weirdness really kicks in is Daniel chapter 7. But uh, it's wonderfully weird, so let's get straight into it. It says this, in the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream of visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, and four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then as I looked, its wings were plucked off. It was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. And the mind of a man was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one, like a bear. It was raised up on one side. It had three ribs and its mouth between its teeth. And it was told, arise, devour much flesh. After this, I looked and behold, another like a leopard, with four wings of a bird on its back. And the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were set before it, and it had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little horn before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking great things. As I looked, thrones were placed and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out before him. A thousand thousand served him. And 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The court sat in judgment and the books were opened. I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. And as I looked, the beast was killed, its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came up to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not 
pass away. And his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. Let me pray. Jesus, we thank you that we come to you today as servants of this great kingdom, a kingdom that will last forever, that cannot be destroyed. And we come and submit our hearts to our great savior, Jesus Christ, the ruler of all the earth, who's chosen to love us despite all our flaws and failures. You love us richly and deeply. And you call us up to be kings and queens in your kingdom, co-heirs with you. And you present us before your father, before the ancient of days. And you present us pure and spotless and blameless, not because of anything we've done, but because of everything that you've done for us. And we humbly come to you this morning and say, speak to us, change us more and more into your likeness. Come let your word minister to our souls this morning. Lead us to you, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. As I said, I've been away this week uh, and as I came home yesterday, I was just catching up with the family and discovered that my youngest daughter has been playing a new game at school. This game is called the coronavirus game. Oh yes. So the boys, they all had the virus and they chased the girls who all ran away and they swapped over and the girls all had the virus and they chased the boys away. So when the service ends, that's what we're gonna be doing together. <laughs> and uh, stories like the coronavirus in the news, they make us aware of, there's kind of an apocalyptic language, language that comes with them, a sense of impending doom and dread. Maybe if you're a bit older and you grew up uh, in the age of the Cold War, and you knew the kind of apocalyptic doom of what could take place if the Russians and the Americans and everybody else fired their nuclear weapons at one another. There's a sense of foreboding and of doom of what might happen. When we consider global warming, the climate emergency, often the language around it leads us to fear and to dread that perhaps this earth we have is fading away and we're killing it and there's nothing we can do about it. A sense of apocalyptic doom. And often that leaves us to ask, where is God in all of that? Should we just panic and fear, worry? Then really, if there is no God, then what else do we have to do? But as we read in this passage, we believe that not only is there a God, 
but that he's in control, that he's in charge. And with that, we find a peace and a hope. But what we find is in the same way we can hear this apocalyptic language around us, which is like apocalyptic means looking towards the end, the kind of future end of everything. In the Bible, we find apocalyptic literature, language as well. But in the Bible, when it looks towards the end of history, although some of the stories, some of the passages like we've just read or in the book of uh, Revelation or in Zechariah or elsewhere in the Bible, sometimes the imagery that it uses can be confusing, perhaps even scary, rather than there being a a tone of doom, we find hope. We find almost an optimism, a joy, that for those of us that are believers in him, that there's a, a new heavens and a new earth coming. Pain and sickness and death and sin are banished. And that gives us great hope and great joy that we can hold on to. And often the Bible will use, just as we read in Daniel 7, of these beasts appearing from the sea, it can use uh, metaphor, which is language used to describe something. So it uses almost unreal language. You know, these pictures of beasts appearing from the sea. I don't know if you've seen the movie Pacific Rim, where you see these massive beasts appear and then these men in these kind of robot machines go and fight the beasts and save the day. And in my head, that's what these beasts are like, kind of emerging out of the Pacific, huge things. And it's unreal language, but it's there to describe something that that is real, but that we can't see. The Bible uses sometimes language which seems kind of grandiose and bizarre, but it's not make-believe. It's trying to describe a spiritual realm that we don't understand, but something that is very real. That there is evil in the world and through human history. That there's a kingdom of Satan that has stood against the kingdom of God. And the Bible tries to give us language to try and understand what's happening there. And what we see in this passage is we see, I don't know if you noticed at the start, there was this this violent storm that takes place, which says the four winds of heaven rushed across the sea. Now if you think of four winds, we've experienced some wind recently, and wind in one direction, if you're cycling your bike, is fairly chaotic. You know, it's not fun. But four winds, that's four winds coming from north, south, east, west. When that all comes together, imagine what would happen on the sea. That would just be a a chaos of destruction. And in in the world that this, the Bible is written to a couple of thousand years ago, the sea was 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 often used as a metaphor to describe chaos. Because although we can get on great big ships or we can fly over the sea on planes, we still know the power of the sea. If you've ever been caught swimming 
by the seaside and a riptide has grabbed you and you're struggling to get back to, to shore. We know the sea has great power. If you've ever seen a mighty storm crashing in on a beach, the sea has a destructive power and it's used here as a picture of chaos. We see right at the beginning of the Bible, in verse two of Genesis one, it talks about the spirit of God hovering over the waters. And that language is used deliberately to tell us that there's a wonderful peace that comes. And over what could be chaotic, that right from the beginning of the Bible, God reigns. He brings peace. And that's what the creation story is about. Because in other, there are other creation stories you can read, even the, the Babylonians, who this is where this book is set in Daniel, they had their own account of creation. But their accounts of creation were about chaos erupting into the world. Whereas our story of creation is of God sending forth his life and his peace, his joy into humanity, into the world. And that's what we find in this story. You get this, it's like a, a battle between peace and chaos. It's a battle against God's creative power and that the anti-destructive, anti-creation power of the enemy. And you see in, in Genesis, Adam, the first man you read about in Genesis chapter one, he's given dominion, he's given authority over all the animals that are in the Garden of Eden, over all of God's creation. And yet Adam fails. He sins, he turns his back on God, he decides to go his own way. And then we see these four beasts emerging, seemingly out of control, where Adam was supposed to subdue the beasts, the beasts are now trying to take control, they're trying to be in charge. And all through human history, and Daniel and his friends would have, they lived through this, of evil empires trying to corrupt God's plan, his perfect plan for the world. An opposition that can seem daunting, that can seem opposed to what they believe, standing against them, fighting against them, and in the first six books of Daniel, what we've read is, a, it's like a historical drama. It's Daniel and his friends, there's these kings that are in control, and they're living in exile in Babylon, and they're trying to live faithfully to God through all of that. And in the rest of Daniel, this is not so much a historical drama, but this is a, a looking into the future, this is a cosmic conflict that is taking place. But it's all about the same thing. That despite whoever is on an earthly throne, whoever's in control, that ultimately God is sovereign. And that despite how we might even wanna control our own lives, each of us and the world around us, our only hope is the divine intervention of God into our lives, into the world around us. And that's what happens in this story. If the first scene of Daniel 7 is this 
kind of horror movie of these beasts emerging from the sea, the scene suddenly shifts and we find ourselves in this heavenly throne room before the Ancient of Days. And then this son of man enters. And it's fascinating because all through, if you read the Gospels, which are the, the four accounts in the New Testament, which tell like an eyewitness account of Jesus' life. And it records lots of things that Jesus said about himself, how he described himself. And one of the main ways that Jesus described himself again and again in the Gospels is he called himself this son of son of man. That's how he described himself. Dozens and dozens of times he called himself the son of man. And he's trying to direct our attention back to this passage. Jesus was saying to his followers, and he's saying to us, that he's not just come as a nice moral teacher. Sometimes people can look at Jesus and say, well, yeah, he was kind of a good guy. He did some nice things. He healed a few people. Jesus isn't putting himself in that category. He's not just saying he's just another prophet that's come to warn us and to shout at us. Jesus is saying, no, I'm not that. Jesus is saying he's this son of man who's come to receive dominion and authority that he's come to send into the world and to lead his new kingdom, the kingdom of God that he sent into the world. And that means that Jesus, that he's in control, means first of all that Jesus, he rules over chaos. Jesus rules over chaos. You see, even at the start of that chapter, those four winds, it says they were four winds of heaven that were stirring up the great sea. It's fascinating. They weren't four winds of evil. They came from heaven. Even over these beasts emerging out of the sea, that God's in control. That when we read news and stories around us, that can scare us that Jesus is in control. Even when we think about the coronavirus, Jesus is in control. Actually, it's through, it's often in church, if you look through church history over the last 2,000 years, it's often in times of crisis, in times of when in the world around us, Everything seems to be on the brink of disruption. That's often when the church flourishes, when the church grows. It's often when the church is able to really serve the world around it. There's a fascinating book written by a, an atheist. Well, I'm not sure he's an atheist. He's definitely an agnostic. He's not a believer in Jesus anyway. He wrote a book called The Rise of Christianity, how the obscure, marginal Jesus movement became the dominant religious force in the Western world in a few centuries. And he wrote a book about trying to understand 
how this group of, in AD 40, just a, a year or two after Jesus' death and resurrection, historians think there are about a thousand Christians on the face of the whole earth, just a thousand. But within 300 years, just in the Roman Empire, the Roman Empire at the time had about 60 million people, they think 33 million of those were Christians, just in 300 years. And if we look now, the state of Christianity around the world, if you go into China, there are probably at least 33 million Christians just in China. All around the world, millions and millions and millions of people worshiping Jesus. And yet, time and time again, the church has prevailed through seasons where it felt like oppression was coming. In those early years of the church, those who were in charge, those who had authority, tried to crush the church, but the church prevailed. And in times where, even in Rome, when times of epidemic and pandemics came into the world, there was a time in Rome about AD 300 where a great plague hit the city. And there was one day in Rome when 5,000 people died in just a day. Sounds like some of the stories you might have read in the news recently. And everybody left the city. They panicked and fled. And the people that stayed were the Christians. And they were the ones that, there weren't hospitals at that time as we know them now, but they were the ones that cared for the poor, that loved people, that rebuilt the city. Now, I'm not trying to say, ah, coronavirus, none of you need to wash your hands or any of that. I'm not saying that at all. But we have nothing to fear. When these stories come that buffer us and scare us, we stand firm that Jesus is in control, that Jesus rules over chaos. And not just on a big global scale, but when you find chaos in your own life, when, when your relationships are just a mess, when your finances are all red numbers, when you just don't know how, it's all gonna come together, when everything just feels broken and chaotic. Well, Jesus is in control of that too. And often it doesn't feel like that. You can feel very distant, very alone. But the Bible says we can come and cast all our anxieties onto him. They will care for us. They will guide us through. That's what we see in this story of Daniel again and again. We see Daniel in the lion's den. And we see Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego walking into the fire. God's there. He's with them. He's with his people. He's with you in what you're walking through in life. He's with you. Wonderful writer Paul Tripp, he said this, all the worrisome things 
that lurk around the corner are under the careful rule of your loving Savior. Because often that's the things that causes the most stress and concern are the things we can't quite see yet, the things just around the corner of life. But Jesus rules over all those things. And he rules with authority. That's what happens in this passage. Jesus is given dominion and authority. And all the other kingdoms that come up in this passage, they try and take authority. They try and grab dominion. And they have some element of it for a while. But the only thing that lasts, the only thing that's true authority is Jesus' authority. Now, authority in our world is often viewed as a negative thing. We don't like authority figures. We don't like authoritarian rule. And that's because we see lots of examples where authority has been abused in the world around us, even in the church, sadly. But yet, being a Christian is not just having Jesus as your mate that gives you some advice which you get to choose to follow from time to time. Being Christian is submitting your life to him and saying, not my will be done, but yours. That's a difficult prayer to pray. It's an easy prayer to pray because we know it too well, but if you really think about it, that's difficult. Not my will be done, but yours. I want to see your kingdom come, not mine. And submitting your life to the authority of Jesus can be very hard. But it's the best thing you can ever do with your life. If you try and lead your life through your own authority, you'll end up in chaos. And it's only Jesus' authority can come and rescue you from that. And he has authority over death, sickness, suffering, your relationships, your bosses at work, your deadlines. He has authority over all of those things. But Jesus rules and he uses this authority. He uses it as a servant. That's how Jesus comes to us. Even when Jesus uses this language of a son of man in the Gospels, he kind of fuses, he brings together two different ideas. On one hand, this Daniel 7 picture of this ruler who's been given dominion and authority, but on the other hand, this picture we see in Isaiah of a suffering servant who comes. That's how Jesus rules. You see it in Daniel chapter two, which is a bit of a mirror image of Daniel seven, where in Daniel two, you see these four kingdoms, which you see in a picture of like this great uh, statue, this great idol, which is taken out by a tiny stone. And this tiny stone expands to fill the whole earth. That's talking about how Jesus comes and wins a victory in, in what looks like weakness, but is actually great strength. 
That's one of the hallmarks of Jesus' kingdom, is that we find strength in weakness. That's one of the hallmarks of what it will be like for you to live a life as a Jesus follower, that you'll find great strength in weakness, in knowing I'm not in control. I'm actually, I'm out of control, but he is in control. Those seasons of life where you just feel so weak, you just feel completely at the end of yourself, that's when often we find our greatest strength because we lean into him and his strength. And that's how Jesus rules in his kingdom as a suffering servant. And Jesus rules through his church. It says at the end of Daniel 27, uh, Daniel 7, sorry, in verse 27, it says, and the, com- the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom and all dominions shall serve and obey him. See, in Jesus' kingdom, where he comes as this ruling Messiah, he gives dominion and authority to his people, to us. This is what it talks about in Matthew. In Matthew 28, this is the story of Jesus' resurrection. It says his appearance, this is when Mary sees Jesus for the first time in, out of the tomb. He says his appearance was like lightning, his clothing white as snow, which sounds very familiar to this ancient of days we saw in Daniel 7. And then it goes on to say at the end of Matthew 28, Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. Again, similar language to Daniel 7. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Talks in Matthew 16 about how Jesus builds his church. But in Matthew 16, he builds it on the rock of Peter, one of his disciples. That Jesus builds his church, Jesus builds his kingdom, but through us. As we launch this new service, it's not about us extending our own empire more of liberty in the city. It's more of Jesus' liberty in the city. We wanna make his name famous. We want more opportunities for people to come and meet Jesus. And we want, as we go out in our lives, into our jobs, our careers, our universities, our homes, to be going knowing that Jesus built his church, but he uses us. He uses us to point people to the king who's on the throne, the king who rules over the chaos and the disaster that people see around them. And ultimately, Jesus, he rules through his victory on the cross. That There's this fourth beast in this picture in Daniel 7 who arises, who's greater than all the others, but he's thrown into the fire and burned and destroyed that on Jesus' cross is what could have looked like the weakest moment, the end of this fragile ministry 
a great victory is won for us. A great victory is won so that we can be brought into his kingdom, that we can know him as our God, our friend, our father. And Jesus hasn't just liberated us from sin, but he's fought a battle against all the formidable powers that stood against the kingdom of God, and they've all been defeated. And we live in this, what we call like a now and not yet kingdom where Jesus is on his throne and he's ruling, but we still see evil around us. But we know that one day, one day in the new heavens and the new earth, all pain, sickness, suffering, all fear, worry, anxieties, gone forever. Let me pray. Jesus, I thank you for your everlasting kingdom. I thank you what you've called us into isn't just a nice club where we sing a few songs and hope that no one notices, but you've called us to live under your rulership, your kingship, your sovereign authority, and it's an authority that's good that you're the only perfect king, the only perfect Lord and Savior that we could ever find in our lives. That you've won us to yourself, not because of what we've done, but you've added us into this kingdom because of your great mercy. And we wanna submit our hearts 